this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. And do get in touch if you do normally listen to the podcast and then you listen to the show. Get in touch. Let me know what you think of the show in general, as a few people have done this week. So it's nice to hear from you. Thank you for that. And a special hello to Pat Martin, who's got in touch, saying was looking forward to listening to Peter Riddle's 42-minute interview, only to find the first 23 minutes was spent not with Mr. Riddle, but in a name conversation about the week's news. Contrary to the episode title, hence why I deem this podcast as clickbait. And that's the first time that Sir Peter Riddle, not Mr. Riddle, has ever been described as being clickbait. But anyway, thank you for all the other actually much nicer messages about the uh, Political Entities series. Coming up today, an absolute cracker, Dominic Sampuk, who podcast listeners will know is one half of the rock star history podcast, The Rest is History. He's just signed as a Times columnist. He speaks exclusively to us ahead of his first piece for The Times. That's coming up on the pod. We will have an inane conversation about the news in just a moment with India Knight and James Mike. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Nadine Doris has finally quit as an MP, uh, but she ignored the rules of resignation Friday. I'm quite cross with myself. So you should be. We also learned her book has been delayed, but maybe she would have got it finished by now if she hadn't uh, spent so long writing a resignation letter. You know, that letter was 1,800 words long. It could have been 3,000 words long. We heard that Dominic Cummings took a classic Dom approach to Francis Elliott's expenses. I met him for a lunch. And he's the only person that, um, when I came to pay the bill for the lunch, he, I see that he put 40 Marlboro cigarettes on the bill. We learned that Police Minister Chris Philp wants to ban... Zombie lives. Presumably to stop people attacking the zombie government. Uh, we learned that Grant Shapps is the new Defence Secretary and has some novel ideas for how to upgrade the Air Force. So I became a pilot after a sort of childhood of making paper planes. We learned that artist Alison Jackson needs your help. I'm really desperate to find a Keir Starmer lookalike. So if anybody looks like Keir Starmer, I would absolutely love to meet you and, and put you in one of my uh, photographs. We learned from adventurer David Hempelman Adams that if you're in France, don't look up as his hot air balloon passes. I think the big problem is when you want to do a poo. How do you do your business? Into a plastic bucket with a, a black bin liner and you save it. So when you come in over France, you throw it over the side and uh, you go up 10,000 feet. But the main thing we learned this week is don't invite on X Factors. Wagner! And ask him about geopolitics. This has never been said by anybody in the media, but I'm going to say it now. Politicians are, most of them, of no use to us. They are unable to work as an Uber driver. They don't want to work at McDonald's. They want to wear suits and ties and live a book. And that, amongst many things, is what we learnt this week. Right, now let's take a look at what has been happening in the news with our two favourite Friday columnists. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. Why, oh, James Levy, you dirty boy. Yes, we are joined by India Knight. India, good morning. Good morning. And hello to James Marriott. Good morning, hello. It's nice you're all back. We have not been all together for ages. I know, it feels like a sort of family reunion or something. Yeah. It's real, really heartwarming. Now, now, all credit to... I mean, it's nice for James to take uh, time out from one of his holidays to join us. But India, you're joining us under some duress. 
I've got COVID, which is feels at this late stage like such a pathetic thing to say. I've got COVID, or you know, yesterday I couldn't find my column on time, and my excuse was I've got COVID, and I felt really weedy saying it. But this new variant is um, really not good. And I've I've been I've been I'm I'm not being melodramatic. I've been the illest I've ever been. I'm on the mend now, and I'm up and I'm dressed, but it's really really rough, and. Um, it's so horrible talking about COVID and so depressing. But my feeling is that this winter might be challenging for people, possibly is again. It, it's interesting because the government, I think, have brought forward the yeah, uh, the start time for boosters yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, did you have it? Have you had it before? Yeah, yeah, I've had it before. But when I've had it before, it's been like a very heavy cold, you know, or maybe sort of light flu. This was just this was just sort of ridiculous. I mean, it does seem to. I I fell I got it on I was ill on Sunday and where are we Friday and I'm now up so it does at least seem to kind of you know proceed along quite quickly but there were for three or four days it was just awful my partner had it as well and he that he said the only thing he could really compare it to was having malaria except this was slightly worse I mean it's, it's just really not fun and so um I would advise people to be you know don't let anyone cough on you be really picky wear a mask if it makes you feel more comfortable because it's horrible 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 and James it, it it's sort of one of those weird things isn't it where we've we've sort of slightly forgotten all about it I don't want to play down Indians because I know I was speaking to somebody else here at Times Radio who had it a couple of weeks ago and they said it felt like the most retro thing and nobody cared when you got Covid yeah everyone was fascinated everyone was, like, was rushing around with cottage it. pies and Lucasade and bags <laughs> of grapes and all you know stockpile of paracetamol and then they said oh pull yourself together yeah and they were so jaded well I applaud I applaud India's heroism she does sound Ill. she does sound authentically ill as well I think yes. which is good for the radio yes good good phoning an <laughs> ill voice although she hasn't phoned <laughs> it sick Yesterday, I sounded exactly like a man. We should have done this yesterday. It was quite comical. Yeah, she could have been, she could have pretended, to, she could pass herself off as me. I could have done India. And we could have <laughs> seen if the listeners noticed. <laughs> but, um, India, it's also, it's a worry, the point you're making is that we head into the winter, which feels very real. I, mean, I think lots, yeah, of, lots so of people great. have been getting in touch to say it's lovely weather where they are, after I said it was a bit misty in London. But if we head into the winter, the NHS is already in a nightmare situation with so many strike days and cancelled operations and, um, uh, and all of that. And if we do get a wave of COVID, that's going to be really tough. My understanding is that the difficulty is that this variant, which I think is called Parola, but I might have dreamt that in my semi-delirium, but I think it is called Parola, um, the, 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 the complication seems to be that the protein spike is so massively mutated that, you know, one can only hope that existing vaccines um, are effective against it. I'm sure they will be effective up to a point, but... I don't know. I just have a bad feeling about it. But I don't want to be the voice of doom because, as you say, it's really retro. Hopefully, you know, the the terrible COVID terribleness has passed. But but I just think people should be a bit mindful that it's out there, that it's it's rough. Well, um, we wish you, we hope you get well soon. We'll send James round with a cottage pie. Yes, to make everything absolutely worse. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's what? Because you, yeah, you, we know that you you like cooking, you like food. What's the thing you be re, you have been enjoying? Can you be able to enjoy food? In your, what's your favorite uh, sort of comfort food? No, I, no, the idea of food makes me feel sick. Oh God, just really atypical. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't want to. I don't want to eat anything. 
I, and I have a funny taste in my mouth. Right, well, that's slightly unfortunate because we're going to move on and talk about um, hosting guests, uh, which may well involve some food. Rishi Sunak off to Balmoral for the first time as Prime Minister, the sort of bank holiday getaway. Um, uh, staying obviously with the King, first time he's hosted the Prime Minister on the bank holiday uh, getaway. Um, I want to talk in a moment about the do's and don'ts of hosting, um, but it'll be interesting to see whether or not the, the, the King Charles lays on the same... Uh, as his parents did. A few years ago, I interviewed David Cameron about his time at Balmoral uh, with Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip, uh, which he told me he found more relaxing than the more formal audiences they used to have in Buckingham Palace. There you are, you're going to stay in a castle in Scotland and you're saying that it's very relaxing and also you see the royal family in relaxation. I think, I mean, it is a haven for them and I think they, they, they love the Highlands and all that it involves and walks and picnics and and and, and the barbecue and the, 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 the barbecue is extraordinary so you get into a car at sort of seven o'clock at night often driven by the queen herself driven at breakneck speed up onto the moor and uh she told me that when the king of saudi arabia stayed that she drove him and so he, she's the only woman to have driven the king of Saudi Arabia and I, I had to say and when I went to Saudi Arabia the king of Saudi Arabia told me that story so I have this as you'd say double source this, double source. this story and and then off you go to a sort of bothier old um, shepherd's um, not a shepherd's hut a, a sort of <laughs> shepherd's house almost up on the up on the hill and there's the Duke of Edinburgh cooking grouse on a barbecue a barbecue that he himself has, has designed and built and that is that's extraordinary to, to sort of be cooked for by Imagine the Queen and, and Prince Philip. Um, I was just reflecting there that David Cameron's compulsion for revealing things the Queen told him uh, even applied to, to going to Balmoral. Um, James, uh, are you are you somebody who enjoys going to stay at other people's houses? Uh, I, I was trying to think about this. I'm not often invited. I'm very keen <laughs> on the idea of other people staying with me, but for me, for most of my entire adult life, I've basically lived in one room in a shared house, which always makes having guests a slightly awkward experience. I've embraced them enthusiastically nonetheless, but it's always... I only now live in a flat, which is still a one-bedroom flat, but I do have a living room for people. But most of my guest experiences have been whoever comes to sleep on the floor next to me. Um, or I, if I'm feeling especially generous, will take the floor myself. Oh. Uh, is that the pecking order? <laughs> depends you know, you're, how... You're if an honoured guest gets the bed, a dishonoured guest gets the yeah. floor. We, we, uh, I, we had a sofa bed and it broke, so we got rid of it. And then basically that means we now can't have anyone to stay. <laughs> Um, uh, Phil in Blackpool says there's only one rule when families stay no late checkout they have to be showered packed and away before 10 I do allow early check-in do you have any rules like that uh, India? Uh, absolutely I have very strong views on people coming to stay <laughs> I think what you do the, the, the problem is people are, as, as that person just identified the problem is people aren't staying there welcome so you say to them come for cocktails stay for brunch and that means they come on friday evening in time for a drink before dinner and they leave after a late breakfast on sunday and that works and the other thing that they do is they 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 entertain themselves during part of the day you know the worst guests are people who kind of stand around rubbing their hands going so what are we doing today you want people to kind of get out and i don't know go and look at something or go and buy some bread or go to the beach or go for a walk or whatever. You don't want them constantly <laughs> hovering around you like children and you're their mum and you're go you, you have to tell them what to do. You want them to be a bit kind of self-starting. What do you think, think. What do you think the king might lay on for Rishi Sunak? Well, from what I've been reading, it all sounds completely kind of terrifying, old school, posh people having fun. Yeah. I mean, all the stuff about 
hunting and fishing. And then charades just sounds... Can you imagine playing charades with King Charles? <laughs> just sounds terrible. And then another very odd thing I was reading, have you, in the, in the Mail Online researching this, was apparently the Queen was fond of this singing fish, Big Mouth Billy Bass. Oh, yes. come across this was played to guests upon their arrival. She had like one of those... It looks like a mounted fish on a piece of board. Yes, and then it sings a, a pop song. It sings, don't worry, be happy to you. And it, she'd push the button when visitors arrived. And then she sort of approved if you kind of sang along with it, which, I mean, just sounds utterly, <laughs> hellishly, socially awkward. I can't even begin to imagine how you deal with that. <laughs> what do you think, India? What, what, what should the king do for wishes soon? What should, he be, what should he be cooking? I think they'll probably get on quite well. I think I don't think Rishi Sunak is a grouse and a buffy kind of guy, but um, but I think the king and queen are India files, and I think I think they'll probably have quite a nice time. I don't know what they're cooking because because um, the Sunaks, presumably being Hindu, are vegetarian, and I think the easiest thing to cook for vegetarians is Indian food. But I don't know if. I don't, I don't know. I, don't I know think maybe. India's famous white beans might be served at Balmoral this weekend. James loved my white beans. I still, haven't, really I still haven't tried them. I still haven't tried them. But I, I, I cooked India's recipe and sent her a picture of it and she approved. It's the culinary triumph of my life. Well, apparently, Lara Spirit, who's also obsessed with these beans, has run out of them, apparently. So, oh, God. She's bereft. Um, uh, <laughs> 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 it's tricky, isn't it? Does, do you do... Does the, do, should the king do the barbecue like his parents used to? Or does he have to do something completely different? Does he have to do sort of? I think you want to break with tradition a little bit, don't you? Do you want to? Or, uh, you know, do <laughs> that's yeah. the new Balmoral tradition. King Charles's yeah. tapas. King Charles's tapas. Tatas, small bravas, plates, small plates. <laughs> it does feel a bit because all that, all, all the, the vibe of that trip was so much Queen Elizabeth II, wasn't it? You know, yeah, everything yeah. that she loved. I feel you can't keep on doing that unchanged. Can you have to sort of break out and do your own thing? Now uh, we all know how James Marriott likes to spend his time. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically bashing away at my column. But there was a time, James, when you spend your, your days frantically bashing away at gaming. Yeah, I did. I was a great enthusiast of a game called Age of Empires 2. I don't know if you've ever played it, but you basically... No, I prefer their early stuff. <laughs> oh, has it got Age of Empires? Age of Empires 2, right. which I think anybody, any man my age listening will be intimately familiar with. You made an army and tried to conquer other people's armies. It was fantastic fun. I was completely addicted to it. But you've seen the light. It did, yeah, well, oh God, everyone's absolutely furious. One of the things I've written that's made people angriest is that I said that in the middle of my adolescence, I realised that playing Age of Empires 2 and doing cavalry charges at people on a computer was not the most useful uh, way, uh, way to spend my time. <laughs> and that maybe, you know, better off kind of reading or something like that. And then everyone on Twitter was absolutely angry at me. Some of the angriest letters I've ever had in the Times, we were absolutely... Um, staring at some of the stuff, the emails I was getting, the letters editor was quite shocked. Uh, and now I'm going to presumably be in trouble again. Yeah, because it, as ever, you write something in your column and then we get someone on to tell you that you're wrong. Uh, Kelsey Gregg <laughs> is an eSports uh, and elite Call of Duty player. Hi, oh, Kelsey. Hi, how are we doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. First of all, what do you think of the game that James was talking about? Honestly, um, I think I'm far too young to hear about that one. So. Uh, oh, no, like that's really old, embarrassing. Is it on your Commodore 64? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> there we are. So, Kelsey, how do you become an elite Call of Duty player? I mean, how I got into it was a it was a complete accident. Obviously, I had my football injury. I was pretty isolated, um, and gaming, to be fair, saved my life because of it. So it's quite the opposite, yeah. Saved her life, James. Oh God, oh, yeah. No. And you're just going to hear something like that. <laughs> and and um, this is, this goes beyond like esports is huge. For people, this is one of the. I must admit, it's not an area I'm overly familiar with. But if you're 
inside the esports world is absolutely massive. People playing it, people watching people play it, people betting on people play. It's massive, isn't it? Oh, it's huge, yeah. Um, and it's only getting bigger, uh, especially here. I mean, America is huge, but in the UK in particular, you know, it's getting bigger and bigger every year. And um, explain to James why it's not a total waste of time. <laughs> well, obviously, um, I'm sure it's not just me that can say, you know, save lives. It kept me out of trouble. And obviously, when I was isolated to my room, um, you know, I could still speak to my friends and whatnot. But it's kind of went from like being a dream, you know, to becoming a career. Uh, which is incredible, you know, I've travelled the world and whatnot, I've met lifelong friends, and I've won a Young Scott Award from it, you know? You see, James? Well, maybe, I think maybe my problem was I wasn't very good at playing video games. <laughs> I, everyone, always, everyone always beat me, so maybe it's actually bitterness that has uh, prompted my outburst. Um, India, while you're stuck at home with COVID, have you thought about some gaming? No, but one of my kids was obsessed with Call of Duty, and one year we got him um, a gaming chair from Argos at his request, and he literally, I mean, it used to really worry me, he literally would not leave, leave his rooms except presumably to wee for days and days on end, and food would, would amass outside, and his eyes would get more and more bloodshot, and we were really worried about it, but then it stopped. Okay. Then he, but, 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 you know, I think... Although it was concerning behaviour, I thought at the time, um, it did it did kind of keep him out of trouble. You know, he was, I don't know, 13, 14, 15. And um, at least he, he and his mates, they used to play communally with headsets on, talking to people all over the world. And at least they were, you knew where they were and you could keep an eye on them. And, you know, the kind of fetidness of the situation seemed quite a small price to pay for knowing. <laughs> And but it, no, it, I mean, it is true, and I know lots of uh, lots of uh, parent friend of ours, particularly you've got boys who during COVID and during lockdowns, when people you know, um, it's all retro talking about COVID now, but during those lockdowns, that's yeah. how boys kept in touch with their mates. It was an amazing sort of social activity that they were all playing these games and talking to each other. Um, Kelsey, Kelsey, in fact, Kelsey, explain to us, when you talk about turning this into a career, how do you go from being quite good at playing a game at home to it being a job? Um, honestly, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been zero to 100. I mean, obviously, I put in a lot of time. Um, I, it's, it's a healthy balance, but yeah, I mean, with this last year in particular, it's, it's been consuming, but not in an unhealthy way. You know, obviously, we still get out. We still manage our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of time going into it. Uh, it paid off. Like I was on top of it as well. You're getting to travel the world, so. So who who? How do you get money? Do you get money because you win competitions, or because you get sponsored, or because I don't? I, I genuinely don't understand it. So how how do you make money from it? Um, obviously you've got your big tournaments. Uh, you can stream as well. Uh, you've got the platform live streaming. You know, uh, on Twitch, uh, Kick, etc., Facebook. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, you can also get money from sponsors. You have really big sponsors out there. Uh, even a lot of your energy drink companies, for example. Uh, getting involved in esports. Getting involved, yeah, yeah. Because I saw somebody was. I think I somebody saw posted on Twitter this week when they uh, they asked their child why why are you watching someone else playing a game on you know gaming and they said well why do you watch someone else playing football yeah. rather than playing it yourself it's like exactly yeah I had a history teacher at school who apparently came third in the world at Age of Empires two and was beaten in some sort of championship in Korea and he forgot to upgrade. Well, that's the his... different James. You just you weren't very good and you were just doing it on your own. Yeah, I know. Well, I could have had a career. I could have been... I wouldn't have been sitting here. I'd have been yeah. off in wherever around the world playing. And Kelsey, do you think you learned anything from it that you can use in real life? I mean, apart from going on a murderous rampage. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that even transferred over from, you know, football, particularly leadership. But even, it sounds weird to say, but even my social skills, um, I've gained confidence from it. Uh, my confidence was in, you know, the dirt. 
um, after my football injury, but yeah. I gained a lot of confidence. And like I said, I've met uh, plenty of people from it. Um, and so. do you, um, because you're known as Kells online, do mm -hmm. people know that you're female? Because I mean, clearly it's a very, as we've just been discussing, it's very sort of boys in their fetid bedrooms uh, mm -hmm. doing this thing. Does it make any, is there, is there sexism in the gaming world? Do people know or, 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 or do you basically whoop their ass and then they discover afterwards? <laughs> um, obviously there is sexism, sadly. Um, it's a male-dominated, you know, esport. Um, but yeah, a lot of people don't realise I'm a female until, yeah, I beat them. And it's a case of, okay, let's look her up for a second. Let's, let's look who this is. Who this is, um, they discover it. Well, Kelsey, <laughs> yeah. Kelsey congratulations. Best of luck with it all. Uh, Kelsey is an eSports and Elite Call of Duty player. James Marriott is a terrible player <laughs> of what? Age of, Age of Empires 2. Age yes. of Empires 2. And uh, um, uh, Indian Art is currently playing the really terrible game, Beating Covid. Indian Art and James Marriott then, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's only Dominic Sandbrook. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, for our big thing today, it doesn't become much bigger than this. Uh, the Times has got a brand new columnist, the historian and rock star podcaster, Dominic Sandbrook, uh, kicks off with an essay in The Times uh, tomorrow, uh, taking a look at, uh, well, King Charles and how he's, he's getting along. Kate's texted, love, love, love Dominic Sandbrook. And Dominic Sandbrook joins me now. Morning, Dominic. Oh, good morning. That's very kind of you, Kate. That's very kind of you. Um, the check is in the post. <laughs> and they, I tell you what, they do. They do love you, Dominic. How does it feel to be uh, a historian pin-up? <laughs> See, if my wife heard that, she would just consider that so unbelievably absurd, and quite rightly. So um, I, I, I don't even recognise... I can't even recognise the question, Matt, because that would drive me mad. <laughs> it's like a Liz Trust. I don't accept the premise of the question. Exactly. Do exactly. You get, Thanks for that comparison. As a result of the huge success of The Rest is History, do you get recognised? Do people know what you look like? Or have you just got this huge audience who only know your voice? <laughs> well, it's funny, actually, because there are people who sometimes when Tom Holland, my co-presenter, and I, when we, you know, we, we were in the Sunday Times magazine, for example, and there were people who sort of said, oh, gosh, that you're not how I thought you would be at all. Generally, they're actually shocked that we're not older than we are which is which is not what you really want to hear you want to think that you sound 25 or 30 or something um i do sometimes yes we do i think both of us um get recognized by people the weird thing is when we get recognized by people who are actually listening to the podcast when they see us so tom and i were once on the train going to an event that we were doing and somebody was was literally listening to our podcast on headphones and kind of looked up and saw us and stopped and said, oh, my God, this is so weird. I'm just listening to you talking about, the I don't know. The space-time continuum opened exactly, up for them. Exactly, exactly. So that is, that is 
um that is pretty weird yeah it is um i'm not quite i'm definitely not at the stage where i'm kind of going around in dark glasses and the baseball cap <laughs> like, like logan roy or something have you been surprised by the success of the podcast they actually podcasts so long had been sort of young millennials talking about their problems um or you know famous people or whatever whereas actually you know embracing history uh has just seemed through it was taken off not just here but right around the world yeah massively surprised actually matt so tom and i started it in 2020 during i think this that the autumn lockdown or thereabouts and i think we both thought that we would just be sort of screaming into a void really i mean when we talked about doing it we just thought well it would be fun you know people have podcasts and um we didn't really listen to podcasts we didn't know what we were doing we have a you know it's, it's goal hanger productions which is a lot of people will know is gary lineker's production company and they are really brilliant at sort of packaging it and whatnot but in a weird way i think maybe the unspun nature of it worked in its favor because it really is i mean it's literally we do it just like i'm talking to you now we do it on on zoom or a similar kind of program we talk to each other for an hour the like the editing is quite light touch um and i guess what really surprised us was we both had existing readerships so tom from his books me from my books and my kind of columns in another newspaper which um i probably won't name <laughs> uh but uh because of that we thought well our audience will be people you know in their 50s let's say that will be our core audience and yeah. the thing that really surprised us was that the probably about 50% of our audience are under the age of 35. So a lot of, of, of youngsters are people in their twenties. And so when we do live events, it's often quite a young crowd, which is not our normal audience at all. And I think that's the most, that is actually the, the, the most sort of heartening aspect of it. Cause you think, you know, the standard thing is to sort of lament, oh, people don't know, they don't care about history, young people aren't interested, they're just interested in cancelling people from the past. <laughs> and that turns out not to be true at all. Lots of people are, are passionate about history, or even actually, the, the, the even funner thing, as it were, is to reach people who weren't passionate about history, but now are realised that it's actually packed full of really fascinating stories and great characters and all the and great dramas and all these kinds of things so that is the satisfying thing the most satisfying thing to reach people who previously weren't interested because we've kind of always had the history buffs but to turn people into history buffs is the is the real challenge well it's really it's really interesting i suppose that thing is if you didn't like history at school you just put it in the box mark things i'm not interested in and then you you, you, you the podcast is a way of hooking into it now we need to talk about your new gig uh you're joining yeah. the times i've yes. had a sneak preview of your essay which is going to be out oh my God. Uh, tomorrow um and it's to you're basically taking a look at uh the the king's first year and putting it into some historical context and it's just a great reminder uh, actually as i discovered i've just been writing um my book looking at political history over basically 250 years M nothing is new there's always something that's happening right now where you can find the yeah. parallels so what are the yeah. parallels of of king charles iii's first year uh that you think we can draw on well, I think the funny thing is um, that actually so often the first year sets the tone for what follows. So, um, you know, when I'm, I was kicking around ideas for the, my first piece for the paper, um, the uh, comments editor said, what's about King Charles's first year? And I sort of thought, well, nothing much has happened in King Charles's first year. And actually, you know, is it a really good, is, is there a lot of mileage in this? And then actually when I thought about it, so to give you one example, Henry VIII, when he becomes king in 1509, very young man, he's not the fat whale of the kind of the, the, the later 
sort of imagery. He's he's a Renaissance prince. He's you know loads loads of languages. Everybody's very excited actually that he is is king. And the two things that he does are he gets married. Surprise, surprise to Catherine of Aragon, and he executes his um, father's two chief advisors, who are two guys called Emerson and Dudley, who are very unpopular because they're very good at raising taxes. And he so what he actually did was he arrested them, puts them in the tower, they kind of stew there for months, and then finally they're beheaded. And actually, that's a brilliant preview of the rest of his reign. That's all his reign right <laughs> there in his the, first... Just a lot of chopping people's heads off. Getting married and executing people. Um, <laughs> But it's a brilliant preview, actually, of the sort of the, the cold ruthlessness with which he with which he ruled. And I guess the two things that all monarchs have to do when they when or they want to do when they kick off. The first thing is they they want to draw um, a clean break. They want to say to the public, this is an exciting new era. And even constitutional monarchs have done that. So Edward VII who had been the great playboy prince in the late Victorian period, when he takes over from Victoria in 1901, he makes a point of having all the palaces redecorated and renovated. Now, Victoria had been, you know, famously kind of in her kind of great mourning period, wearing black, very miserable, spending all the time on the Isle of Wight. He stays in London. He doesn't really leave London very much in his first year. He goes out on the town every night having dinner, going to parties, all of this kind of thing. He's in his late 50s, but he's a great kind of hedonist. And that is a very public symbol that there's been a changing of the guard and a new age and all that. So that's always part of the repertoire, I think. But then the other important thing that they have to do, a monarch, is they have to, I think it's really important that they signal to the public, I'm not going to make a terrible mess of everything. I'm going to be quite careful and I'm going to be prudent. So although there is the sort of the surface sort of change, underneath there has to be the continuity. And actually, the, the, the really good example of somebody who manages that really skillfully is Charles II. So Charles II comes back in 1660. And he has, you know, we think of him as, you know, the Merry Monarch, sort of buxom orange sellers, bawdy plays, all this business. But he has the most unbelievably tricky inheritance in his first 12 months because he has basically been installed by, through a military coup, through the former parliamentarian general, George Monk, has marched down from Scotland recalled parliament they've called back charles from um from the continent but there are tons of people in britain who are very suspicious about charles coming back and there are all the wounds of the civil wars are still there and all that stuff and he manages it brilliantly because he basically he issues a general pardon for all the crimes in the civil wars he doesn't restore confiscate doesn't mess around with confiscated lands he doesn't really punish the former parliamentarians only the people who signed his father's death warrants which i think we would say is probably fair enough <laughs> um so in other words he's really he's actually remarkably consensual and conciliatory and i think for any monarch, even a constitutional one, even a 21st century constitutional one, recognizing the limits of your power, what the public and the kind of political class will accept, and what you can get away with and what you can't. You know, recognize, actually, we're just and, working out what and that's what is. That, that is clearly what Charles III has been doing is, you know, actually right. Right. not rocking the boat, not doing exactly. very much is part, exactly. is a strategy. That, that is, a, that is a, a choice in of itself. Um, it is exactly because that's everyone thought, Matt, that he would be interfering, writing loads of letters, have, you know, gaffes and blunders. And the fact that we haven't seen that 
is a, a political a point in itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sorry, I interrupted. No, no, it's all right. No, so that's good. So that's the that's the sort of the, the royal parallels. We need to talk about the political parallels because that was my 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 greater area of expertise. And in the great debate about. In, in the politics we're, we're living through now, is it 1997? Is it 1992? My current favourite is it's 1974 because uh, a prime minister beset by high energy prices, industrial unrest, uh, a lack of grip, uh, goes to the country in a sort of who governs Britain election uh, and it doesn't quite go according to plan. This is an unprecedented situation. The Prime Minister clearly is in two minds about how this election result is to be interpreted. He is consulting with his senior colleagues. The Labour Party believes that it is in a position to form a government, if necessary a minority government, and to carry out workable policies. This is the indecisive general election of 1974. Well, that was in February 1974. Of course, there was another one uh, uh, later that year where, where Howard Wilson um, got uh, a small majority. Um, yeah. So my, 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 you know, in this parlour game, I just think actually it's possible Rishi Sunak goes in in the spring, Labour falls short of a majority, Keir Starmer ends up having to go in again. Um, where, where, what's the parallel that you think we're living through right now? Well, I'm going to be very boring now, Matt, and disappoint you and say I never think that parallels really work. Um, but we do feel like we're in a 70s moment, don't we, a little bit. So in for high inflation, a floundering government, a sense of crisis. I think the thing that is really most reminiscent of the 70s is a kind of generalised sense of Britain not working. Don't you think? So people moan to say with all the trains, rivers, you know, airline traffic control got in a mess, all of these schools, kinds of things. Schools falling and, down. And of course, all of these things, by the way, all of these things always happen. But there are particular moments when they become kind of elevated into a grand narrative about political failure and declinism and so on. And that obviously happened in the mid-70s. And again, in, I mean, it was still there in 1979 when Mrs. Thatcher won. Um, it was there again in the major years. I think, I mean, it's really, your 1974 parallel will work if Labour falls short. But obviously, if they, if they don't fall yeah, short. The polls, I mean, the they, polls suggest it might be wrong before it's even happened. <laughs> yeah, so I don't. So although I think the mood music is very seventies and much more seventies than nineties, there's obviously if the polls don't change. I mean, of course they could, but if they don't change by the spring, you would have to say that you're looking at a kind of nineteen ninety seven yeah. result. I don't, personally don't think Labour will win as big a majority as they did under um, Tony Blair. So it might be more like nineteen seventy nine um, when Mrs Thatcher, you know, when she. But I guess the difference is that Mrs Thatcher felt in nineteen seventy nine like a massive change like a personally a huge huge for some people a breath of fresh air for other people a, a terrible shock i don't think keir starmer strikes anybody as either of those things actually so in that sense he is a bit more like harold wilson because when wilson came back in 74 wilson you know wilson was very kind of a tired weary kind of slightly shop soiled figure keir starmer's not shop soiled but he's not exactly you know he's not shiny tony blair from 1997 kind of you know playing doing keepy uppies with um kevin keegan is he <laughs> no, although he does play football. Whenever he talks about it, it's like he's learned it from a documentary. That's right. Um, <laughs> and what about, and I know you've you've talked about this before, um, um, Pete, I've heard you talked about it before, this idea that, you know, the Westminster bubble gets all obsessed with actually, is it Tony Blair all over again? And, uh, uh, you know, very London-centric and metropolitan. Actually, much of England is much more um, provincial, rural, the sort of people who land in those places. You know, actually, Theresa May, had, a, had clearly had a following in those places. Callaghan, even Stanley Baldwin. Would, would Keir Starmer fit into that as someone who does just appeal to people who want everything to just be a bit quieter? We don't want razzle-medazzle or, yes. or blowing things up the whole time. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. First, by, by the way, Matt, massive congratulations for mentioning Stanley Baldwin. It never gets mentioned enough on Times Radio. <laughs> um, my political hero. Um, uh, I think there's I definitely... What, I've done my research, Dominic. I'm not daft. You have done. You have done. I commend your research. Brilliant. Either you or your researcher. I mean, I don't know if you no, have I a listen, researcher. I listen, to, I, listen, um, I listen to the podcast and I know, yes. I'm um, uh, not, 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 not daft. But yeah, there is that sort of sense of, you know, yeah. the, the, the wanting the big showman, you know, you, look, exactly. look, look, look that I have yes. with Boris Johnson, that actually quiet, steady, provincial England yeah. might not want that. You're quite right. I think I think there is a there are a couple of archetypes that recur in British politics, and one of them is what I would call kind of the mountebank, the showman, the, the, the bit of a, a bit, of, as you said, a bit of razzle dazzle, but also the hint of the charlatan, the con man. So David Lloyd George was a little bit like that. Churchill was a little bit like that, bit like that, of course. You know, Boris. Um, you could argue Tony Blair was like that to some extent. And the other is the Mister kind of reassuring, often pipe smoking, the kind of Stanley Baldwin archetype or or Jim Callahan. And I think Starmer clearly. He, you know, he fits much more naturally into that. And I think what that kind of person appeals to is often we forget, and it's the single biggest thing that I think the historians or people interested in politics, the, the, their biggest mistake is they overestimate how much other people are interested in politics. So writing my books about post-war Britain, it's really striking how at any given moment, most people would have, at any moment, most people would have struggled to name many cabinet ministers. They're not actually aware of the great political stories of the day. They're not really interested. They think all politicians are extremely boring and are kind of all the same or just annoying. And that famous clip of the woman, I think she was called Brenda from Bristol, who was horrified when Theresa May called an election. You know, another election, oh no. God, they're so awful. I think she's obviously spoke for a lot of the yeah. country. We've always been there. And those people, to those people, anti-politics often appeals. So the less ideological you are, the more boring, the more pragmatic, and just like the person down the road, often the more that a lot of the public yeah, will like you. And actually, part of the problem with the Theresa May calling that election was, you know, the gamble was so off-brand for her, and that's what... Uh, yes. Dominic, um, yes. we've had loads of questions coming in. And um, will you answer some of them in a sec? Uh, I will. Uh, someone on the text says, um, Dominic, what is your greatest counterfactual uh, when you think about something happening that didn't happen, e.g. Hitler winning the Second World War? Do you like counterfactuals in history? Uh, I kind of do and I don't. So I find them really good fun, but I think most of them break down very quickly. Um, probably the, the, the funnest one is, um, what if Britain hadn't entered the First World War? See, so quite against the general grain of, of British historians. I don't think Britain should have entered the First World War. I think we'd have been better off if we'd stayed out and actually let the central powers win. Shocking. Um, so that's probably my favourite counterfactual. Most people think I'm completely mad and heretical on that. Um, I think uh, Michael Gove would probably describe me as a Marxist historian because he thinks this is a Marxist view. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I think we, that's my favourite one. That's um, it. it was interesting. Over the summer, I was in uh, Vienna, and actually my wife and daughter didn't want to come, but I went off and saw the car where um, Franz Ferdinand Oh, brilliant. Was shot. Yes, I've seen the car. It's good, in the, it? uh, oh, if in the Army weird. Museum. Yeah. If yeah. Bit, I just thought, would we put, I don't know, uh, the, 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 the car where someone and his suit were, you know, with the bullet hole and all that. Seems a bit weird, but it was obviously such a such a massive moment in history. Actually, talking of which, Matt in Nottingham says, "What's the origin story of the Kaiser's wrong shoes?" Okay, so uh, the Kaiser. This was a this is an, a um, a running joke. Actually, I find it really excruciating. Tom Holland, my co-presenter, finds it enormously amusing. Right. Um, I. It's <laughs> a running joke about uh, the Kaiser. So, of course, the Kaiser was related very closely. You know, he's a cousin, effectively, to. Um, the British royal family. So he would come to Britain and he hated, he felt that his family was looked down on him 
and that they always sort of despised him for turning up at kind of the cow's regatta or whatever it is in the wrong attire, in the wrong shoes. And Tom Holland, my co-presenter, he himself went to cows and once wore the non-you shoes, inappropriate <laughs> shoes. So we've often discussed if the Kaiser had been made to feel more welcome, if people had not treated him as this irritatingly uh, over-earnest German relative, if, he'd, if people had made him feel comfortable about wearing the wrong shoes, would the First World War not have happened? Right. So it's obviously an absolutely ludicrous conceit. There we are. That's Matt in Nottingham told. Um, uh, Huffy in Hove says, does Dominic want to apologise yet for excluding Tony Blair from his list of best UK prime ministers? No. I was obviously, um, I was totally right. And that is the <laughs> canonical list. I am the judge. And so that is the list. That, I think that was when I really discovered it. it was, during, was that, uh, that, was, that felt like I listened to that during a lockdown. You doing the oh, best so yeah, so um, so that actually what she's talking about, or he's talking about, I can't remember who asked the question. Sorry, <laughs> Huffy of Hoves. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. What, what Huffy is asking about is a bonus episode for our Restis History Club members, which I heartily recommend to your listeners, and uh, which I chose my top ten. But before that, we did a World Cup of Prime Ministers where people voted. That's what and, I remember. Yeah, And yeah. I can't remember, Blair crashed out quite early on, I think. So Clement Attlee won, as he was always going to do, because it was done by a Twitter vote. So obviously Clement Attlee was going to win. <laughs> Uh, very good. Uh, Leo in Canterbury says, um, I was reading Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier recently, I'll get you, uh, where he mentions a massive housing shortage and the market is broken, written in the 1930s. Are housing crises nothing new in British history? And are we just uniquely obsessed with home ownership in this country? Uh, we are uniquely obsessed with home ownership, I think. So we're very poor at, um, we've, and particularly ownership of your own house rather than a flat. So if you've been to Vienna, Matt, you will know that, you know, most European cities you'll have seen they have these tremendous kind of mansion flats street after street of them mm. which london doesn't really do london becomes quite suburban very quickly and that's because you know the victorian kind of dream was you'd have your own little kind of cottage in the city with your own back garden and a little front garden and all those kinds of things now i think for a country with our population that probably wasn't necessarily the the, the best model um, and then the funny thing about the 20s and 30s is that's when a, a gigantic proportion of our housing stock was actually built. So the Baldwin years, the 20s and 30s, are tremendous for British. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, if people keep asking the questions, Matt, what can I do? I know, exactly. Um, all those uh, lead back to Stanley Baldwin, not Wigan Pier. They, they do indeed. So all these, I mean, lots of people listening to this to this show will live in 1920s and 1930s kind of suburban houses. That's where enormous proportion of the British people live. So there has always been an issue with housing shortages and good housing. But I think we are in a very peculiar and unusual moment where effectively it's never been so generational as it is now. So there are lots of people in the 50s who needed houses, but they weren't necessarily all young people. The issue that we have now is the young people can't afford to get on the ladder. And that hasn't really got a, an obvious precedent. Very good. Uh, Dez in Newcastle upon Tyne says, I loved Dominic's five books on Britain between 1956 and 1982. The last one, Who Dares Wins, was my reading during the first lockdown three years ago. Is there going to be the promised sixth volume which takes the story from 1982 to the end of the miners' strike? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, Des, once again, checking the post. Um, <laughs> I Yes, I was only talking to somebody about that uh, last week. Um 
I have a little bit of it written. It won't be for a few years, um, but yet it will. Um, so it will kick off right after the the end of the Falklands War. So you know, Mrs. Thatcher kind of triumphant, um, well ahead in the polls. You've obviously got the 1983 election, um, which you'll know all about with your kind of political hat on, Matt. So Michael Foot's Labour Party getting a terrible beating, and and Mrs. Thatcher's kind of the signs of her hubris, if you like, even at that early stage. I think when you read her colleagues memoirs and so on they're they're already there and then the great drama of the miners strike i mean a really totemic kind of confrontation um between arthur scargill on the one hand and the and the conservative governments on the other so it's a great subject um and uh and i just want to take my time and do it properly a bit like with who dares wins because it's very controversial and i I think it's it would be boring to write a kind of one-sided or partisan book i want to make sure i get it right and is 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 there a point then that you would stop, or is there a what do you think is the right length of time between the events and then looking back on them at the point where they become history rather than yeah. sort of contemporary political reporting? Well, I always thought I've always thought it's about thirty or forty years. Um, so A. J. P. Taylor wrote his book uh, on the interwar years, so one of the first really good books on the interwar years, the twenties and thirties. He wrote that he published that in I think nineteen sixty five. So it had just kind of receded over the horizon, as it were. I think you have to let it recede over the horizon so that the conflicts and the controversies no longer feel current, so that you can write about them without feeling you've got a dog in the fight. So for me, I would say up to about 1990 would be, I mean, it just feels like such an obvious cutoff point. Yeah. The Cold War, fall of the Berlin Wall, and obviously the fall of Mrs. Thatcher in November 1990 just feels like the moment. Now, because, of course, if I got into the 90s, rise of Tony Blair and so on, there I would be writing about a period where I was a, had become a young adult and where I was starting to vote. So I first voted in 1997. And at that point, it becomes, I think, much harder for you as a writer to divest yourself of your old convictions and prejudices and things. Because um, I feel like when historians write about periods that they were an, during which they're an adult and they voted and they politically participated, it often just become, they, they, they don't question their own yeah, their yeah. own preconceptions they forget they that's... forget that they're just one person in a country whereas right. if you're looking at yeah. it with the space time you look at the country as a whole and the people who make, exactly. make it up just, exactly. just finally Tom I mean I could to be honest I could chat to you all morning um, is there a bit of it of all the stuff you've done is there a bit of history you're just not interested in I don't know, a collection of, uh, I don't know, a particular, whether it's a, a period or a king or a prime minister or just something, because you do everything. Well, you know, it's all the way back to the, the Romans, right up to, like, the 80s, um, when, when you're doing um, the rest of so, it. So, yeah, there is. I don't care. There is, there is. <laughs> there is. I shouldn't say this, because people remember and they will judge me for it. I actually hate archaeology. I find it incredibly boring. <laughs> so I, I love, to me, the core of history is the stories of the human beings. Um, and there are different ways of doing that. So you can do that through economics, you can do it in quite a dry way, whatever. But when there are no human beings effectively involved, so when you're doing kind of Stonehenge or something, I actually find that unbelievably boring. Oh, well, I look forward to you not writing about that in your New Times column. <laughs> when you get the email uh, next week, yeah, you'll be thinking maybe you could do, you know, the history through bits of old pots that have been found in the ground. I'd do it. I'd do it, Matt. I'm a pro. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. You can read Dominic Sandbrook's first piece for The Times on Saturday. That's September the 2nd. And he's rewriting essays and columns and pieces for The Times in the coming weeks and months. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes, especially as we go hurtling right into the political term from Monday, party conferences, election countdown, it's all happening. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.